So, Noah and the ark. What's the deal with that? Here we are now in our sixth week in this journey through the whole Old Testament narrative, recognizing that the Bible is primarily a single story, and we're trying to capture that story about what God intended for the world, what went wrong, what God has done about it, and how it's going to end up. And we're looking at the Old Testament section, all that took place before the advent of Jesus the Christ, because it all sets the stage. Today, we're going to cover Genesis 6 through 9. I'm not going to spend a lot of time digging into the actual story of Noah and the ark. Of all the stories in the Bible, it's probably one that is known the most. Uh, Here is the problem with the fact that it is such a well-known story, and that is that we have done one of two things. We have either simplified it to the point where it fits into a children's fairy tale. It's really a grown-up story. It's about destruction and judgment and the death of an entire civilization, an entire race. We've simplified the story, so all the meat's taken out of it. The other thing we've done is sensationalize it. We picture people mocking Noah ridiculing him for a hundred years while he builds the ark, people banging on the door with the door shut. None of that's in the biblical record. The Bible just tells us what happened. It tells us why it happened. We have to sometimes deconstruct all the things we've thrown into the Bible in order to get the real message. There's two things you have to ask every time we come to God's Word. What did it say? And the second question is, what does that mean for us today? If you start with what you want it to mean for us today, then you're going to read your own ideas into the Bible. Instead of getting at the original story, you'll miss what it says and you'll miss the lesson altogether. So let's try to come at it and hear what it says, what it's about. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, as I said, with the actual story of the flood. What I really want to spend time is talking about why God sent the flood, the particular issues that it brings up for our beliefs our view of God and the ways that we wrestle with it, and then the lessons we're supposed to learn from it. But let's talk just for a while about the story itself. What is it that we're supposed to believe? And I guess the question I want to address is, do we have to believe in a global flood in order to believe in Scripture, in the God of Scripture, and believe in this story? And I want to acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, very gifted, godly, committed people have different opinions about this, and I want to honor those, those opinions. But what I want to answer is, do I as a Christian need to believe in a global flood? And my answer, first of all, is maybe. <laughs> maybe. If you're coming at this and saying, well, I just have a hard time believing in a global flood, simply because you want to dictate whether it's reasonable or not, then you're coming at it for all the wrong reasons anyway. You actually have a faith issue, not an understanding issue. I just want to ask, why not? Why couldn't it happen? There is compelling geological evidence in the most unexpected places in the world and heights in the world that would point to the possibility of a global flood. Those who are secularists in terms of their approach to science discount, and they would rule out that possibility altogether. There are around the world, not throughout the world, but around the world, compelling stories about a flood that occurred that indicate that maybe there was a common event that is in the memory of the human race. So that that argument is not without merit. But here's my second part of the answer. The first answer is, uh, is there a global flood? Well, maybe. But the second part is not necessarily. The biblical text doesn't actually require 
that we see the flood as a global experience. Let me just talk about that and explain that to you a little bit. In the whole Genesis 6 through 9 account, the phrase that is used to describe the whole earth is kol eretz. Uh, Eretz is is the important word here, translated as the earth, but it is more commonly used throughout the Old Testament and translated as land or country. It is an interpretive choice to translate it in the Genesis 6 account as earth. In fact, the actual Hebrew word that is the earth as a whole is the term tebel, and that is not used anywhere in Genesis 6 through 9. But that is the phrase when it is referred to the earth in its entirety. And you'll find that in other places in the Old Testament. You will not find it here. There's no evidence that people at that time, even the biblical writers, had a clear understanding of the earth as we see it the global nature of it. The view of the whole of the earth was a very small section of the world as we've come to understand it. So is it possible that when Moses wrote about the flood, he was talking about it covering the whole land, the whole earth as they understood it to be? The story doesn't tell us either way. And that's really my point to you. My point to you is while we have created an idea of this story that we have to take a specific interpretation, which requires a specific choice in translation of words, that we have to take that approach or the whole Bible falls apart, that's frankly an erroneous argument. It doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't a global flood. I'm saying the logical argument that ties that particular interpretation to our whole faith is an erroneous argument. And the text itself leaves room to believe that it was, in fact, a flood that was the whole of the Semite people, which would be all of Mesopotamia. And, of course, the experience would be that of the whole earth being covered. I don't know for sure. But my faith is not challenged either way. And the text doesn't call for me to see it in those terms in order to believe the Bible. What matters is that there was a flood, There was a judgment of God, and that we should believe. And the evidence within the stories and the mythologies of surrounding cultures and the like points to that with clarity. But let's get on to the second section and talk about the reason for the flood, because this is what matters, I think, most. There was a flood. There was a judgment on the human race. There was a reboot. There was a flushing and a reboot with uh, Noah and his family. There certainly was. So let's talk about why. Why would God do that? We find the answer in Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the land or on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. 
So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so this is another one of those texts that if you have the King James translation, you see some pretty wild things here. The term Nephilim in King James is interpreted and translated as giant. This is the passage where we get this idea that angels came down, fallen angels, and procreated with human females, and the result were physical giants. And therefore, it suggested that God wiped out humanity because it had been corrupted by angelic DNA, which produced these giants, and so there needed to be an eradication of that. That's one of the ideas that's out there. It's pretty sensational. Let me just ask this question. How do we interpret the meaning of a text? What's one of the first things we do when we're trying to come to a text in the Bible and trying to interpret what it means? Do any of you remember? Very good. You get the context. You have to get the background of it. You can't just jump into it and just presume. What I want to do is back up with you and get the whole story and the real meaning. Last week we ended with Genesis chapter 4. We looked at Cain and Abel in the fall. We see the disobedience, the murder of Abel, the punishment of Cain. And then we see his line coming down and beginning civilization. Not that civilization itself is bad. You see the same thing happening in the next chapter when you see the line of Seth. But what you see is a civilization growing, and it is marked predominantly by Lamech, who took up the rebellion of Cain when he said in verse 23 to his wives, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, that's what God promised he would do. He would protect Cain, that if if he was hurt, God was going to avenge him seven times beyond anything that Cain was deserving of as a murderer. That was the promise. So Lamech goes on, he says, if that's what's going to happen to Cain, here's what's going to happen to me. Lamech will bring justice for himself 70 times seven. By the way, it's probably that statement that Jesus is turning upside down when he talks about how often we as Christians are to forgive people. Lamech was saying, I'm going to get my own justice, and I'm going to do it to the state of absolute perfection, 70 times seven, the perfect number taken to a point of infinity, metaphorically, to say, I will always get revenge, and it will always be many times more than the pain I've suffered. That was Lamech. He represents the line of Cain. It's a rebellious line. You'll notice also through chapter 4, they refer to as men, as mortal men. Jesus, by the way, just later, later on says, no, we don't see justice. We leave room for the justice of God. As for us, do we forgive merely seven? No, we forgive 70 times seven. That's the difference between life in Christ, in grace, in freedom, God-centered and focused versus the line of Cain, which pictured the human race totally focused on itself, totally dependent on itself, self-serving, not trusting or submitting to God in any way, but even getting justice for themselves. So that's chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends with this phrase, but at that time men began to call 
on the name of the Lord. Then we move forward. Now, you do recognize that the chapter breaks that we have in the Bible were not in the original writings, that they're simply put in there by theologians and experts to help us find our way around. There is a flow from that statement. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord into the next chapter. And what you'll hear is pretty remarkable. Listen to it. This is the written account of Adam's line. Now we're pausing here. We just saw the line of Cain, and it says this is the account of Cain's line. Cain, last time I checked, was a descendant of Adam. But Cain is so rejected, and his line of humanity is so rejected that with the coming of Seth, there is almost a reboot. Let's read it together. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Once again, we see that the whole human race, male and female, equally created in the image of God. Didn't we already get that? Haven't we learned that at least uh, twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2? But it's almost like he's starting again now. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image, and he named him Seth. This is very important because what we have is a transfer, Adam being created to reflect God's glory in his image, the image bearer of God, often called the son of God, having a son of his own. And this is the son, whereas Cain has the mark of rebellion. He's taken on the mark of rebellion, and his whole line shows that rebellion and sin against God. Then we have Seth, who is the one who will continue the calling of the human race to bear the glory and the image of God. So the son of the son of God, Adam, Seth, now we see his line. It's interesting, if you were to read the names in the line of Seth and the names in the line of Cain, there is a remarkable parallelism between them, some very common names. One of the differences as you go through chapter 5 and see the different names that come through the line of Seth is a remarkable statement. Numerous times this line is marked not out of rebellion, not like Lamech who said, I will seek my own justice, I'll stand on my own. I will bring death if necessary. I've already killed a man. I'll kill again. That's the line of Cain. You have those in this passage, like Enoch, and this powerful little statement that's worth a whole sermon in itself. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Enoch's faith was so strong by the way, Hebrews 11 has a lot to say about what I'm, gonna, what I'm sharing with you right now and how we interpret Genesis chapter 6. Hebrews 11 makes it very clear that Enoch had such a walk with God, was so close in his relationship with God, that he did not face death. I heard it explained this way, that a mother and a son were walking, and, and the son asked, you know how the Bible says Enoch walked with God and he wasn't? Uh, what does that mean? And the mom said, well, the Bible says that God and Enoch walked together. They were very close friends. And maybe one day they walked and walked and walked and walked together, and it got so late that they were so far away from Enoch's house that God said to him, hey, we're closer to my place. Why don't you just come home? It's beautiful. It's simplistic. It's childlike. But it does speak of this innocent, powerful, intimate relationship 
that marked the line of Seth. Enoch walked with God. Later on, Noah. Why did Noah find favor with God? According to Hebrews 11, it was his faith that accorded him as righteous. Just like it was Abel's faith that accorded him as righteous. Just like it was Enoch's faith. All of these names are listed in Hebrews 11. These were the people of faith. The line out of which Christ would eventually come. The line out of which Abram would come and the people of God. This was the righteous line. It goes all the way through, and we see Methuselah, and then we see Lamech, a righteous Lamech, who was the father of Noah. And so we see this line coming down as we come into chapter 6. So let's just read the end of chapter 5. Let's pick up at uh, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, "'He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands.'" Caused by the ground, the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived over 700 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, right up to the passage we read earlier, what we have is this description of these two lines of men that have come down. One that has come down out of the line of death and rebellion. Mortal man inasmuch as he is spiritually dead, not just physically dying as a result of the fall. And then we see the line of Seth coming from Adam himself, the image bearer. Seth inheriting that image bearer by faith, having relationship with God and being accorded to him as righteous. We see these two lines coming down. And then we come to chapter 6. And what we see is something startling happening between these two lines. That's what it is. Look at it. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose without discrimination. What is that? Yes, there are places in the Bible where angels are called sons of God. But in this context... It's talking about a place in time where these two distinct lines, the righteous line, the sons of God. Let me just show you a passage. It's in Galatians. Say this with me, Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's you and me. We're sons of God, children of God. How do we become that? Through faith in Christ. In Hebrews 11, how did Enoch walk with God. How did Noah walk with God, which it says of him? According to Hebrews 11, it was by faith they were counted as righteous. You see? These are the sons of God inasmuch as they are the righteous line that is living by faith and submission and living by righteousness to God. But they begin looking at at the other hill and seeing what they believed was greener grass. Sensuality, sexuality, lust, begins to dominate the decisions. That's what we have happening here, the corruption of the righteous line. There is a mingling of these two lines which brings the unrighteousness, the seed of rebellion and disobedience into these households. And so there's a loss of the glory of God. See what happens here? And that's where we come to the Nephilim. We don't really know who the Nephilim were. The word nephal does not mean giant. It means fallen 
or corrupt. Nephilim is the plural noun form of that used as a title for a group of men. That literally means the fallen ones. The translation giant is inaccurate based on the mythology that I believe had developed through the Dark Ages into the period where the King James was translated. So it's proper just to use this as a name and to recognize that a name means everything. These were the fallen ones. But what else do we read about them? The Nephilim were those that were the heroes of old, men of renown. One of the Nephilim was likely Lamech. The first one who stood up and said, I will avenge myself. I will be a powerful man. These were tyrants. They were giants among men, the most powerful in this line of corruption. Killers, great warriors, self-determining, self-centered, self-serving, self-justifying. See, you can see a lot about a culture by their heroes. Who do they hold up as their heroes? This whole culture held these men up as their heroes. Don Richardson, in his book, Peace Child, talks about going to a tribe in New Guinea where he sought to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a culture whose highest value was deceit and betrayal. He learned the language, practiced telling the story of the gospel, and told the story to the men of the tribe about Jesus and the betrayal and the crucifixion. The men thought that the hero of the story, who do you think? It was Judas. Who your heroes are tells you a lot about your culture. How bad was this culture that led to the point that God said, it's time to start again? This was a culture where Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito won World War II, where the slaughter of Jews and Christians by the millions in Europe and the Asian Holocaust were held up as heroic acts and deeds. Does that put it in perspective for you? And that's why we come to this point where God says he sees how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And he said, it's time to start over. It makes more sense when you go through the whole story and see what's happened here, doesn't it? It's really powerful. I want to just quickly go through and just address um, a couple of issues and then just list a few lessons that should be ours to learn from this. Someday we'll come back and look at this with more detail. What are some of the issues that we deal with when we look at Noah and the Ark, the real story, the grown-up version of it? Well, the first one is the issue of believability which we've already talked about in the opening, the different ways you can look at the language and and what the text actually requires of you to believe. The second issue is the, the notion that our God would do this. A whole race wiped out except for one family. Grandparents, moms, dads, children, babies, All of them wiped out. Frankly, we'd rather it stay in the children form because that way we wouldn't have to wrestle with what kind of God would do that. What was God thinking? I want to suggest a different question, and that is to understand how 
God thinks. And I, I want to just address four things about how God thinks and acts. I think it's important that we recognize. This, to me, is one of the biggest issues for even Christians to deal with. Our tendency is to take God and try to make him manageable, try to make sense of him. But the God of the Bible cannot be boxed in. Our tendency is to try to cross every T, dot every I, and get God figured out. But then we study the next thing, and God defies our understanding. See, one of the things we have to recognize is as soon as you think you've got God fully figured out, he's going to disappoint you. (laughs) And he says, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. You can't define me based on what you would do or how you would think. And you should certainly never think that you have the better thoughts than me because you're merely human. I'm God. What are some of the things that we can learn about God here that help us with the issues? The first thing is we need to remember that God thinks eternally. God is eternal. Time is part of his creation. So God sits and looks at all of creation, including time itself, from front to beginning. God thinks eternal. You and I are creatures of time. We think from the point we are now. We evaluate our past. We measure our time going forward. We make the most of it. And we see death as the thing we put off. Why? Because our focus is our present reality. And therefore, when God acts in such a way that that reality is cut short, we're left thinking He's robbed us of something because we're not thinking eternally. We're acting as though this life, what the Bible simply calls a vapor, you reach for it, it's gone. That's how brief it is. We're acting as though this life is all there is. Therefore, were God to act in any way that would cut it short, that just doesn't make sense at all. But God functions on an eternal scale. My grandmother recently turned 104 years old. I'm really hoping I have her genes. I had a nephew that lived six days. From the perspective of eternity, there is absolutely no difference. God's thinking eternally. God acts and says, I'm going to take this life. That doesn't mean life ends. It means life transitions. And some of that life transitions into judgment. Some of it transitions into reward. I think it's important that we first capture that. God thinks eternally. Second, God thinks generationally. We don't. We Americans, we're individualistic. We think everything is about me, myself, my merits, my responsibility, my own relationship with God. That's unique to our culture, to the Western culture. That is not how most of the world still thinks today. It is certainly not how the God of the Bible thinks. He thinks generationally. God will judge a generation, a people, for the action of those who are responsible. How does God act? These are some of the things I think we need to include. Two ways. God always acts justly. He always acts justly. But let me add the second one right away. Within acting justly, God always acts fairly. God says through Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. It is no contradiction to God 
that he will always act justly. Where there is sin, he will always deal with it. He will always respond to it in judgment. But within that, he will always exercise loving kindness simultaneously. I want to take you to two quick passages that help us see Noah's Ark through this. And they were both written by the Apostle Peter, one of the closest members of Christ's entourage. Among the inner circle, if anyone can speak to us about the context of Jesus' teaching, and bring the Old Testament into it. It's Peter. And the first thing I want you to look at is 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, I'll start at verse 4. And if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Then he goes on and mentions other acts of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Then he concludes this. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials, but he also knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Peter says Noah's ark is supposed to teach us that God always acts justly and he knows exactly how to do it. But now, I want you to look at another passage by Peter. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is one of those passages, people have been trying to figure out what exactly this means for the almost 2,000 years the text has been with us. But there is a unique promise and perspective about the flood that we can get from it. 1 Peter 3 I'm going to start with verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now listen to this. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, that's one of those great mysteries, (laughs) that somehow Christ... At some point in time, we, we tend to assume it's those days in between his death and his resurrection. He went someplace where the very people that were judged in the flood heard of the promise of redemption. I can't fully explain it. We need to interpret it in the light of some of the things that are more clear in the Bible. The one thing I do want you to see, which is clear here, is that God is fair. Whatever else it means, God is fair. So let's get past the issues that we have with even the ark, with God calling down judgment on whole cities at a time, and recognize that in the midst of it, I can trust God's justice, I can trust his goodness and his fairness, and know that he will act that way. And with that in mind, I just want to bullet four things that ultimately we can learn from this story. The first is that God takes sin very seriously and will always judge it. You may not like that about God. Deal with it. God is God and you're not. God will always judge sin. It's in his nature to do that. Which means that we need to take it seriously too. We need to take God seriously. Awe and reverence that recognizes his otherness, his holiness. The second truth is God also takes faith seriously and will always honor it. The lesson we get from all of these stories of the righteous people that followed God is that even back in the early chapters of Genesis, it was always faith that accorded them righteousness. It was always faith that allowed them to walk in relationship with God. 
just as it is for you and me, the children of God today. God honors faith. He's always looking for mankind to turn. He waited 120 years before he brought the judgment. The third thing, we can't fix the world ourselves. If there's any lesson we should learn from Noah in the ark is what would happen if we got what a lot of us often think about. Wouldn't it be great if we could just get rid of all the evil that's been built up in the world? If all the good people were the only ones left and we got to start fresh, we'd make a perfect world. And I'd say to myself, (laughs) what a wonderful world. If I'm not mistaken, that's sort of what happened here. And maybe that's the lesson of all. God's saying, look, you see, a lot of you are going to think that's the solution, and I want to just prove once and for all that it's not. There's something else that's needed. But here's the beauty of it. In the midst of it, God is absolutely determined and committed to recreate both us and the world. He's in it. One way to look at this story is that God created the world and we have the first Adam. And as the race corrupted itself, God rebooted and Noah represents the second Adam. But ultimately, all that is to help us understand that the purpose of the righteous line is to make way for the final Adam, who was Christ. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all died. In the new Adam, Christ, all are made alive. Let's pray together. Lord, we've covered a lot. Help us to see you as bigger, awesome, in some ways fearsome in all of your glory and holiness, but yet absolutely righteous and loving, and you are also the way maker through Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we can come to you boldly and call you Abba, Daddy. And be your sons and daughters. We celebrate that, Father. And we commit ourselves to doing justly, to loving mercy, and to walking humbly with our God. Amen.